And as we work through this series called Guard One Another, today we're going to be looking at not judging each other. And that doesn't mean not judging the world, which we're not supposed to do anyway, but not judging one another in the family of faith. And as I prepared for my message today, I thought, where, how can we bring this home? How can we sort of set the standard for this or, or paint a picture of what we're talking about here when it comes to judging one another? Because the topic today in the passage is food. Uh, it's about food. But what, what is an underlying concept that will help us catch this idea of not judging one another? And so I began to think about weddings. You've probably been to a wedding. Some of you have even been in a wedding because you're married. And so you've been at least one wedding. But, but weddings are the place where judgment takes center stage. Because think about it. When you drive up to the church or these days the venue, because nobody gets married in a church anymore. That's just true. <laughs> The venue, you're analyzing how does it compare to other venues, the beautiful oak trees outside, or, you know, is it positioned right? You're admiring the door, or the inside, the, the wood floor and the acoustics, you know, you're doing this kind of stuff. You're, you're constantly analyzing what's happening. And then you begin to see the groomsmen. Oh boy, that motley crew. You hope they're sober and dressed and ready to take uh, their position on the stage with hands left over right at the belt with their jacket buttoned properly and they don't either pass out or do something stupid that ruins the moment because that's what groomsmen stereotypically are known for. And then as the ceremony begins, you watch that groom stand there. Hmm. Boy, he sure did outpunt his coverage with this one. Well, I don't, I don't know what she sees in him. Why is that never the opposite? Why is it never like the groom is the real catch? Maybe that's just a male perspective, but I'm just wondering. Just wondering. Don't send me any emails. They go to Matt, okay? Uh, M. Parker at... Um, but here he is standing up there. You're looking at him and analyzing his fitness to be a husband. As the bridesmaids walk down, you're analyzing every stitch of their dress, depending on how much is there. Do they hold the bouquet at the right position, the, the belly button, not too low, not too high? Are they walking too fast or too slow? And then the bride, this beautiful creation of God. And in modern venues, she's walking down a staircase or something crazy, turn around a corner from a gazebo. And we all stand up, but then immediately, ooh, that dress, I wonder how much it cost. <laughs> and she finally gets to the head of the aisle and she's crying or the groom is crying and they're wondering why are they crying. Even I got judged for this at my own wedding. Brandy was crying and I whispered to her, don't cry. I got judged for that. I was telling her what to do. I just wanted her to be happy. That was a stretch probably. 
See my point earlier about outpunting your coverage. How is her family going to react to him? How's the giveaway going to happen? Is this really going to go, what, this minister? Man, where did they get this guy? And then we get to the kiss. And we analyze that and we judge the kiss. Is it too short, too long, too sensual, not sensual enough? And then they depart and then the real critique begins. Because at the reception... We all of a sudden, somehow, in those magical moments before the couple, after the couple is introduced as husband and wife, all of us receive three-star certification from Michelin for being food critics, fashion critics, and music critics. Because once the reception starts, then... We're analyzing the beef or chicken, because that's your options at most weddings. The potatoes, the green beans, the roll, the wedding cake. Where did they find this DJ? Does, does, does he live in our century? And then your eyes are scanning the room for that person who didn't dress quite right for the occasion. And then you whisper at your table, who is that? Who brought them? Did they get invited? What in the world? And so may that set the stage for us today. As we think about this idea of guarding one another, of encouraging one another, lifting one another up, and not being people of faith who judge one another. If you have your Bible open to Romans 14 now, let me invite you to look at verse 13. It says this, as Paul writes to the church at Rome, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, for building up. Paul is writing to the church, the church at Rome, which is filled with this kind of smorgasbord of people from Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And so the Jewish Christians have brought their Jewish heritage to their faith. And for some of them, it's a real struggle to eat certain foods, which the Jewish heritage claims are unclean. And so that's the backdrop of this passage, that the old taboos of food were still in play for some of the believers 
in the church. And so Paul is writing to the church to help bring them together. And it's very clear in Scripture that that Jesus says it's not what a man puts in his body that makes him unclean, but it's what is on the inside of your body that makes you unclean. It's what comes out that's unclean. And so it's not a matter of food being clean or unclean. Jesus has abolished that. But Paul was concerned about the effect of this freedom. The effect of freedom had on the body of Christ. That's the concern here, not really about what's for dinner, hot dogs or hamburgers. That's not the issue. Thank you, hamburgers is correct. But it's about how we love one another. And those that are new in the faith, that don't understand the full freedom they have in Christ, is it our opportunity to judge them, to put them down, to dismiss them, to ignore them, to try to get them to be on our side and and say how right we are? No, the opportunity is for us to love them and build them up. Now, I want to be clear, this is not an issue of sin or no sin. So the food issue is not a sin issue. Uh, The Bible is very clear about what is right and what is wrong. It's not, oh, well, I I think it's okay, so it's okay. That, That is not true. There are very clear mandates from Scripture that there are sins that we should avoid at all costs, that we should flee from sin. And so Paul's not talking about sort of this idea that we should just, oh, if if I think it's all right, then it's okay. And and if you don't, well, that's fine too. I've got my truth and you've got your truth. That's not the issue at all. No, this is a matter of, of preference. These secondary issues where we may differ Historically, one of those, I I hesitate to even mention any. But historically, one of those is music in worship. That's a preference. And so it's things like that, like food, other things, these secondary issues that that are not specifically mentioned in Scripture, that are not means of salvation, that are not sin, black and white. And so in these cases, when preference is the issue, the stronger believer has an obligation to be sensitive to the weaker believer. We have an obligation to be sensitive to one another. And so how do we, if we consider ourselves strong in the faith, how do we handle these types of moments? What's very simple, we forego our liberty. We give it up. We let it go. We say, I'm going to defer to you for your sake. Not for my sake, but for your sake. I'm not going to judge you because you're not as mature in the faith as I am to be able to handle this. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to dismiss you. I'm not going to argue with you. No, I'm going to operate out of love so I don't hinder someone. So I don't grieve someone. So I don't create a problem for someone for whom Christ died. What a powerful passage. I don't want to do anything that hinders someone for whom Christ died. 
I, I don't want that to be my testimony. And this is a minor issue in the grand scheme of things. In the book of Romans, the issue is food, a minor issue. And so let's not try to change people's idea to our strong belief on an issue that doesn't matter. Let's not get angry with one another. Let's not fuss at one another. Let's not argue back and forth with one another. May we forego our liberty. Because that's the most Christ-like thing to do. There's a well-known devotional book throughout history. When I say history, I really mean that because it was written in the 1400s. It's called The Imitation of Christ. It was written by Thomas A. Kempis. He, he was a, a monk who devoted himself to living a life of humility, devoted completely to Christ. Uh, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, uh, the, the kind of a champion of faith himself, he said, The Imitation of Christ, that book, is the greatest book written on how to live the Christian life he had ever read. Written in the 1400s. It was actually four booklets that Thomas put together into a devotional. It's been translated into over 50 languages. It has thousands and thousands of editions. It's been read worldwide. And Thomas A. Kempis, in this book, he spoke to this very issue. He said, be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be since you cannot make yourself as you wish to be. What a great perspective. Why would I try to force you to become like me because I can't even make myself like I want to be? May we not be angry. May we not judge others because they do not become like what we want because we have a tough time managing ourselves. Food and drink, some of these minor issues, and may I dare say one over the last year starts with an M, might be one of those issues for us. How many hours we've spent defending our position, trying to get everybody to believe like we believe and just ostracizing others. Rather than foregoing our liberty, our belief on a secondary issue, causing someone to stumble because we've been dogmatic and right. It's not just that issue, it's lots of issues. The focal point of this passage, the focal point of our Christian living is not food or drink or some social issue, but it's our concern for brothers and sisters in the faith that my concern is for you. And so I want to be willing to sacrifice my freedom of opinion for you. We should be willing to sacrifice our freedom of opinion for members of the faith family. It doesn't have to be my way. It doesn't have to be my thought. I'm willingly gonna sacrifice my opinion for the family of faith. My actions don't have to be your actions. And so I'm not going to judge. I don't want to judge the weaker brother or ignore him or her 
Because it could cause a deep wound. It could be cause distress and frustration. On the one hand, the weaker believer will be pained, will be discouraged because the stronger person is doing what he or she feels like they cannot do. I can't do that and they can and so that hurts me. But even worse is the stronger believer in their freedom plows ahead and lives their life and shares their opinion, their thoughts, and their lifestyle. And then that weaker believer says, well, I guess if they can do it, I'll do it. And they're emboldened to go against their convictions and being grieved even more. And so may we be very careful in how we live our lives, how we share our opinions, how we try to get people to our side. Because this is a matter of integrity for all of us. The integrity of the stronger believer is at stake and the integrity of the weaker believer is at stake. May we not walk in pride and arrogance and cheap grace. But may we walk in love as Paul calls us to. Love is the standard. And the kingdom of God is more important than my preference. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God is more important than my preference. Thank you. And I'll give you an example. I, for the last uh, 15, give or take years, I have been an editor. But most of you don't know that. I didn't put it on my resume when I came here. But I am. Uh, I'm an editor of dozens and dozens and dozens of, dozens of publications. Because every time the three members of the Lorenz household who happen to still be in school have a paper or an essay, I get to be the editor. It pays horribly. <laughs> and the emotional toll it takes is even greater. And this last week, I've had the great honor of editing a paper for a sophomore in college. And I'm happy to do it. But the paper is a rhetorical analysis of an album. He's in a communications class about music and film. And it's a rhetorical analysis of an album. And the album is called Jesus is King. It came out two years ago. Some of you know the album. Some of you have no idea what I'm speaking of. The album was released in 2019 by a world-renowned artist and businessman named Kanye West. A Christian album. Thank you for proving my point about our passage right then. What in the world? For those of you that didn't know the album. Kanye West and Christian albums seem mutually exclusive. But they're not. Kanye has a faith. He's a weaker believer, perhaps. He struggled in his life uh, with some mental health issues. His life is portrayed all through media, and he's struggling through a divorce right now, which is, of course, all over uh, the news. 
But two years ago, he released that album, Jesus is King. And you know what one of the songs is specifically targeted at? The judgment of the church against him. And the reason I know that is because, number one, I have the album. And number two, it was a part of this paper that I got to edit. That he spoke directly in one of his songs about the judgment that he would receive from the church. What Christians would say about him. How sad is that? That someone who has a platform that you and I will never have, more than likely. Able to share the gospel. And that's his goal. His brand of Christianity is slightly different than mine. There are some things that he says and believes that I'm not fully embracing. But if he proclaims the name of Jesus for salvation, I'm going to be all for him. And he went around pre-COVID and toured the country with his church services, which I think you had to pay for. Again, that's part of an issue, but if they want to pay and get the gospel, wonderful. The kingdom of God is more important than my preference. More important than whether I think hip-hop is the right kind of music or not. And I'll take it a one, one step further for you. Here is this young believer, this, this young and his faith guy. And not only did he produce and rap and sing on a Christian album that debuted at number one on the Billboard charts, he also brought two artists together who had not performed together in 10 years. They were part of a group called Clips. Two artists, Pusha T and No Malice. I know it's on everyone's playlist. <laughs> but these guys had a falling out 10 years ago. And what did Kanye do? He got them back together to rap on one of the songs that he sings. Sounds a lot like a minister of reconciliation to me. The kingdom of God is more important than my preference. I need to operate in love and righteousness and joy. Because as Paul shares that phrase, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That phrase, kingdom of God, is the only place it's used in Romans. And it's about us and how we treat each other and what it says about the kingdom, the heavenly kingdom. How you and I live together in righteousness, joy, and love speaks to the greater kingdom of God, that we should live uprightly. That's what it means to live righteously, that I live in a right relationship with God. I live uprightly, full of peace. I have the peace that passes all understanding. I'm, I'm calm. I have an assurance in the midst of chaos. I have security. 
I'm filled with joy. I have satisfaction no matter life circumstances. I have satisfaction no matter how things are going in my life. Because I have the Spirit of God living in me. These characteristics are essential for us. That we as the body of Christ, that we as people of faith would live in, in harmony together. That we would live in fellowship with one another, building one another up, not forcing our lifestyle or our opinions on each other. That we would be people who serve Christ. That word serve there, Christ, means to keep on serving as a slave, as a servant. That my service, my life of service never ends. It never goes away. It, it never is dependent on circumstance. It isn't dependent on who I'm asked to serve. I just keep on serving all the time. I keep going because my desire is to please God and to honor you, to honor one another. That we would pursue peace with each other. As it says in the last verse, that we would pursue what makes for peace, that we'd be peacemakers. Not that I would just be at peace in myself, that, oh, uh, my life's good, thank you very much. Your world might be falling apart, but I'm peaceful. Enjoy, God bless you, I'll pray for you. No, that would be a peacemaker. I would be one who pursues peace and builds you up. The original word there means, is edification, which means to properly construct a building. That's what edification is, to properly construct a building. I want to invest so much in you. I, I want to be so engaged in your life that, that you and I are building each other up in a proper way. Spiritually, that we're growing together in Christ in the right way. That we're like a giant city on a hill whose light cannot be hidden. That's our calling. That we're peacemakers with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because our life should be defined by peace rather than critique. And so the next time you go to a wedding, celebrate, enjoy, bless, serve. And the next time you go to a restaurant, or a social event, or church, or a ball game, or your upstairs bedroom, or the living room. Serve, love, be a peacemaker. Because that's the kind of conduct that will demonstrate to the world what it means to live in a different kingdom, to live in the kingdom of God. That's what it means to guard one another, that we would give up ourselves for one another. Will you pray with me?